This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Gustavo Gutierrez-Suarez, one of the hosts of New Books in Anthropology, a podcast series of New Books Network. Today, we are here with Dr. Andrea Ballestero, Associate Professor of the University of Southern California, author of A Future History of Water, published by Duke University Press. She also directs the Ethnography Studio. We are also with Dr. Britt Rose Winterreich, Professor of Science and Technology Studies and Ethnography at the IT University of Copenhagen and co-author of Monitoring Movements in Developing Development Aid, Recursive Partnerships and Infrastructures. Hello, Professor Ballestero, Professor Winterreich, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. Hello, Gustavo. It's really wonderful to be here with you and with Brit and to have a chance to talk about our book. Yeah, hello, Ruth and uh, all the listeners. It's really nice to be here. Thank you so much for being here and talking to us about the book you have recently co-edited, Experimenting with Ethnography, a Companion to Analysis, published by the Duke University Press in 2021. I'm obviously more than happy to have this interview and thus offer our audience a close-up look to this remarkable and insightful book. Before we start to talk about your book itself, could you please tell us a bit about your academic life and the previous work you have been doing? Yes, I, I think I, I can start and then I'll pass it on to, to Brit. So I, uh, I am originally from Costa Rica. I have been working in academia in the United States uh, for a while now. I came to the United States to do my master's degree and continued into a PhD uh, program in anthropology. Um, and since then, I've had a couple of... Uh, uh, positions here in the United States. Most recently, I have moved to the University of Southern California to the anthropology department over there. And uh, my work and my background is highly interdisciplinary. I was originally trained uh, as a lawyer. I did a master's in natural resource policy and I did a PhD in anthropology. So I understand my work as um, inhabiting spaces where all of these fields um, encounter each other. And uh, I, I think of my work as opening spaces to uh, examine the ways in which water uh, in Latin America is uh, thought about, understood, but also uh, turned into a technical object uh, through which 
uh, important questions about what it means to live life collectively are figured out. Um, and so specifically in my work, I combine science and technology studies, uh, sociolegal studies, and social studies of finance, all uh, with an anthropological uh, flavor. Um, I'm currently doing work on imaginaries on the underground. I'm working on a book that is tentatively titled Expanding the Social World Downwards. And I've been thinking about aquifers and the ways in which science and uh, finance play out in turning aquifers into political objects. Yeah, I have been working uh, throughout my academic career across science and technology studies and anthropology. And uh, originally I trained as an anthropologist and um, then I discovered science and technology studies as a field, but it didn't really exist in Denmark at that time. So um, I, I, I went to the Netherlands to study um, digital infrastructures at, at that time uh, ICTs was the co common word to talk about the digital information and communication technologies. And I did that in a health um, practice, uh, clinical context. So what I was missing in anthropology was actually a much more uh, intimate relationship with technology. And, uh, and I found that in science and technology studies. But then what I missed in science and technology studies was a serious engagement with methods. And so um, speaking about ethnography uh, to a science and technology audience and speaking about technology to an anthropological audience has more or less been uh, characterizing my academic life for the past uh, 20 years. And specifically, I work on uh, information infrastructures uh, in its broadest possible sense, but always uh, with one aspect to do with the digital. At the moment, I work on uh, very much on a project on uh, what is called uh, digital inclusion, which is actually a very applied project because digital inclusion in the Nordic countries is a policy response to the problem that this uh, public sector digitalization that we have uh, and are uh, presumably uh, world, in a world championship uh, that exists among countries, the Nordic countries are in the top but because of this broad coverage of digital solutions, uh, digital platforms, a lot of citizens face serious problems and challenges when they engage with, uh, with the state. And uh, so the policy response has been digital inclusion. And now we are trying to figure out what that means and how that looks in practice and to include a diversity and social justice perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, um, how did you become interested in this um, experimental approach to ethnography? And how did you start to work on, on this book? Could you please tell us about the, um, the genesis and the process behind it? Sure. Um, so, I, I, it's, a, it's a very... Uh, nice history because it's a history of an encounter uh, between things that were happening uh, already. Uh, and so I think in, in keeping in tandem with the spirit of the book, 
uh, this is this the story or the genealogy or the uh, origin story of the book is not one of oh we had this incredible idea independently and then we made it happen. It's a story of we were doing and having these conversations with groups of people and then we happened to encounter one another and decided to launch these two projects as one uh, together. So on my end, I. I since my the beginning of my training, I've been having uh, conversations and been really interested in what are the possibilities of ethnography when ethnography happens in places that are not, uh, you know, the classic uh, images that come to mind when you think about ethnography in anthropology. Those classic images usually were uh, small, uh, small villages or communities. Uh, where an ethnographer is able to have a very intimate relation with people for a sustained period of time. And uh, my project was not about that. My project was about the movement of knowledge across uh, international borders in relation to the human right to water. And so from the very, and I'm speaking now about my dissertation project. So from the very beginning, I had to figure out the ways in which uh, I was going to craft an ethnographic investigation that didn't take for granted a community or a group of people as uh, the unit of analysis. And that uh, is connected to the kind of training that I received at, at UCI, the University of California at Irvine, um, where there were a group of people that were really invested in this kind of question. After my PhD, once I became a faculty member, I started working, uh, I created the Ethnography Studio, which is a space in which this question about the, the conceptual and analytical work at the core of ethnography is really what orients what we do. And in that space, we were always working with this experimental mindset, even if the word experiment wasn't necessarily the one that we were using to guide the work. And from that point of view, experimental in the ethnography studio meant uh, attempting um, approaches to ethnographic work that were suited to a particular project, but that you had no idea if they were going to be 100% viable. So the experiment was almost an attempt to figure out an, a methodological approach to a question, to an ethnographic project, uh, to give yourself the chance of inhabiting that space of curiosity, but also committed uh, and sometimes worried uh, inquiry uh, and think about the methodological implications of asking ethnographic questions and going about finding answers in a resolutely ethnographic way that did not map with the classic understanding of ethnography. And I had been doing this since, uh, since 2012 and uh, had, uh, you know, the universe, uh, and actually a, a common friend, uh, Rachel Douglas-Jones, uh, brought uh, Brit and I together into a workshop. And that's where I met Brit. And maybe I'll let Brit now speak about what was happening up to that point, uh, and then we can talk about how, we, uh, how the book took shape. Yes, uh, so we met in Copenhagen, and uh, at that time I was very involved in a... a, a, a a studio also, a, a laboratory, as we called it, the ESAS lab at the IT University, um, with very similar concerns and interests that Andrea just talked about. Um, what I 
could maybe add, I think it's also a common uh, interest that we had, is about creating a safe space for nurturing uh, uncertainty and playfulness. Because in the Knowledge Economy University, these are the things that get uh, threatened very easily when there's um, people are working hard to get their publications out. And we were uh, both um, experiencing a need for some oxygen in terms of, you know, sp spaces where we could develop our thinking and also for, you know, peer-to-peer -peer and, and training um, of junior scholars in order to, you know, create creativity um, and allow for that, really. Uh, and it maybe sounds like very easy, but I f feel still that, you know, even when people get more experienced and, I mean, it's a good thing to have spaces for that kind of uncertainty because it is, I mean, our one of our share, uh, um, common hero, hero, heroes, uh, Marilyn Strathern, uh, she even talks about how every time she needs to start writing, uh, she sinks into some kind of depression. So I think it's a lifelong companion in academic life and work that we need to you know, uh, care for ourselves and for the communities where these kind of, um, well, where uncertainty is, is sort of uh, okay and a good thing. Based on that, uh, we we met at that workshop uh, in Copenhagen, and then uh, Brit uh, came to visit uh, uh, to Rice University, and we tell a little bit of this story in the in the introduction uh we uh brit came we organized a workshop uh, uh with her through the ethnography studio uh, with the students uh, at rice university graduate students and uh out of that experience uh we we just confirmed uh, the the intellectual affinities that we had and also our shared interest in a space that we felt uh, had not received as much attention in anthropology and in ethnography and uh, a little bit more in STS. Uh, but still, you know, as all authors do, we thought we had something to say specific about that space. And that space is the space of analysis. So in our conversations, we, we were um, at the workshop and I can, I can remember my desk. I can remember the light coming through the window when we were having this conversation and you know, using a Google Doc to say, yeah, maybe we should do a book um, that actually brings together people that are having uh, similar, people that are moved by similar questions, right? And I think for the book, and, and hopefully this is evident, we really wanted uh instead of trying to homogenize and create a cohesive account that was aligned around a single understanding uh, or, a, or a very clear shared understanding of either analysis or method or technique or anything like that, what we really wanted were uh, colleagues that were moved by similar curiosities and who answered the questions uh, or who addressed those curiosities in their own ways. Um, and there's a variety of, you know, theoretical orientations, uh, regional interests, topical interests in the book. 
Uh, but what mattered to us was uh, to really make each chapter uh, and we're extremely thankful to the authors for embarking in this adventure with us. Uh, and going back, what I, what we really wanted was to make each chapter be fully ethnographically grounded, but also explicitly about a protocol or a method or an approach to do analysis. In other words, the chapters are not only ethnographic descriptions, but they are very concrete suggestions about how to do analysis that grow out of, out of a specific uh, ethnographic context. So in that conversation with that Google Doc, uh, it's where the, the idea of the book started. And uh, we began thinking concretely about who would we want to invite. And of course, there were many, many, many more people that we wanted to invite that couldn't make it into the book. Um, but the other, the last thing I'll say about this, and then I'll pass it to you, uh, Britt, is we also wanted a writing process or a book production process that also reflected the ways in which we worked uh, in the studio or the ethos lab. And what that meant is it took a long time. It was a, a process that was really extended. Uh, we also involved graduate students. Uh, we had an internal peer review process where uh, graduate students uh, that worked, uh, two of them worked with me in the studio and two were actually suggested uh, by one of the authors uh, in the book. Uh, they played a really key role in the, in the formation of the project and their reflections are in the two afterwards that you can see at the end uh, of the book. First, let me tell you that, it, that it's a, a really great and nice story of, of a genesis of a book. Um, so let's move on to, to, to the book itself, right? Um, you open this book uh, with an introduction, right? Um, and in this introduction, uh, you say uh, this. Um, this collection grapples with analysis as a constitutive process of ethnographic work. It picks up where most discussions on ethnography as a form of knowledge production stop. The point at which we are called to specify how we perform analysis. How should we um, understand this, this statement? Yeah, I can continue there. Uh, thank you a lot for picking exactly that uh, part because um, what we had experienced ourselves was that uh, very often we uh, as ethnographers would have quite a lot of guidance on how to create a research design and set up our plans for field work and also quite a bit of, um, of, of, of guidance in terms of, of planning field work and conducting fieldwork. And then, um, in a way, being, uh, you know, also confused by what we would encounter in the field as ethnographers, because things would not, of course, look as we imagined, and things would be entirely different, and being, like, caught off guard by this messy reality uh, that would, of course, and that we were also as that we are prepared as ethnographers to encounter but then when you know um coming back from field work and even still in the field 
trying to make sense of all these encounters and and people and places and and events and and things that are going on and meetings um, and technologies that we see, um, we were sort of missing um, some help and some support and some guidance in how to organize uh, our thinking that would be in a way um, a little bit messy also you know along the lines with with the mess that we were encountering and in the classic way of thinking about ethnography there's a very clear separation between the field and the desk where the field is where you collect your material and the desk is where you organize and write and we would like to complicate that distinguishing between those two places and trying to you know um entangle them also in theory you could say just as they are in practice so our book is a theoretical attempt to try to um to mess to make i guess the the separation a little more natural and to also you know say okay um it's not the case that when you come back from field work like one of our afterwards is uh, stating the students that um Andrea mentioned before, uh, Clément Dreanou and Marcus Rodolfi, they say, so then when we come back, we ask, so what is this about? And they said, this aboutism is not always really super constructive because maybe it's more about diving into, you know, what we have and what we, how we experience our material and, you know, having a, a little um, less instrumental way of addressing it a more playful one and also a more collaborative one so the book um dives into you know uh, um, to come back to that statement that statement is about analysis as a collaborative uh space uh, that is uh, uh playful and experimental andrea maybe you want to continue there yeah uh I'll just add that in our thinking, the way in which we organized this uh, this context to which we were reacting was by, you know, uh, purifying it into a contrast, right? So we say, you know, there's a way in which discussions of analysis uh, are presented uh, or actually not presented, are implicitly uh, discussed as these... Um, you know, strike of genius, serendipitous thing that happens without you knowing. Something that is implicit in your mind, uh, literally your mind, uh, as you're trying to say something about the worlds that you have been a part of and the worlds that you want to speak to. And so it's all implicit. It is. Uh, it happens, but you don't really know that it is happening. And then on the other hand, there's an approach that is uh, that some people fault for being more mechanical and even violent in terms of uh, parsing out elements, uh, reducing things to units, and creating models, causal models, or even relational models that explain those elements. And that approach is was also falling short. Right. Uh, and so we said, if you if you are presented with these two um, streams of possibility, aren't there other possibilities? And that's where we wanted to add something. 
something that was that didn't reject systematicity or or method or uh, you know an organized approach. So, so and, uh, we wanted something that offered ways of taking this systematic, uh, organized way of doing analysis, but at the same time, uh, ways in which the creative, open nature of of producing ethnographic insights was also celebrated, right? And, And we did feel that there was something, there was a way in which two things, those two things could be combined. Um, uh, and the other thing that I'll say is that this, this commitment for, for this uh, new stream or this alternative or third or combined stream, however we want to call it, is also growing out of a conviction and, and a, a clarity that our intellectual work happens in specific locations with given resources or lack of resources in particular time periods with us as embodied beings that are part of hierarchies of all sorts. You know, we can talk about some of the hierarchies that are being discussed more recently, race, ethnicity, gender, class, right? And so analysis is not this thing of the mind that happens somewhere in the abstract universe. It's something that we do with limited resources and limited time. And as such, it requires a practical orientation that implies organizing your work in some way. And so we really wanted to keep that at the center while also, as a, and I think I'm just repeating what I said a moment ago, celebrating the power of ethnographic knowledge production as that which is able to crystallize, crystallize insights that you did not fully anticipate when you began researching a question. Uh, and so it is, it is that space that we wanted to make a contribution to uh, uh, so that there people, ethnographers, both that are starting to do this or that have been doing this for a long time, uh, had something to put side by side with the uh, resources that there exist for organizing fieldwork and the resources that exist for writing and the craft of writing as an aesthetic practice and analytic practice. Now, um, you offer out you offer an outlook to this um, anthology by using the hypothetical figure of an ethnographer who is going through her research materials once again, and thus is immersed in the world she wants to learn more about and in the words out of which she conducts her inquiry. Um, could you please tell us um, more about this figure of this hypothetical ethnographer and how did you come up with, with this idea? Okay, I'll, I'll start. <laughs> uh, we're just making signs to each other to see who's going to uh, speak first. Uh, so when we were writing the introduction, we... And, and this follows a little bit uh, from what I just said. We also wanted to think from the specificity of, of people and place. Uh, but of course, there's no one experience of learning how to do ethnography or how to go through that process. So we imagined a variety of possibilities to ground uh, that experience. 
one experience, one one um, figure that we actually first wrote the introduction with, but then end up ended up uh, taken out, is um, a, a character from a movie, a movie that's called The Lives of Others, uh, that maybe people in the audience uh, have. Uh, have seen, uh, and it's the story of this uh, person that is uh, responsible for bugging uh, the house of a couple of artists uh, uh, in in Germany, um, and uh, this person is responsible uh, for recording their daily activities and figuring out whether they are um, quote unquote enemies of the state or not. Uh, and uh, and pre pre nineteen eighty nine. Yes, and maybe also mention that we were working on the book in Berlin. Just to add to what you said about the time and place um, and how that figure really grew out of our collaboration during those that week. Mm-hmm. And... And uh, the we were thinking a lot of that with that figure about this responsibility, uh, and we like the, fi- the this figure because of how complicated and ethically compromised his activity was, and we wanted to remind ourselves uh, the ways in which ethnographic practice is a very delicate ethical practice, uh, in the sense that you're. Um, you know, working with people that are opening their experiences to you. Sometimes you work with people with whom you agree and like very much. Many times you work with people with whom you don't agree at all and actually have strong opinions about the work that they do. So for a while, we we, we gave a, per, a first uh, pass to the introduction and wrote with that figure, but then thought, you know, we don't have enough time to be as careful as you need to be when putting a figure like that at the center of an introduction. And so we thought, okay, let's switch to another figure. Um, and this was actually feedback that we got from, from uh, a colleague that helped us reading the introduction uh, and also from uh, the reviewers of the book. So shout out to the reviewers and the peer review process and how important and, and generative it can be. So after getting that feedback, we decided maybe this is not the best place uh, or the best person to ground uh, what we want to say on. So we thought, you know, what we're talking about is this hypothetical figure of an ethnographer uh, and making that figure explicit in the text could be a useful way to create those affinities or to to really place and, and make concrete the questions that we ourselves and other people that we know have had in the process of doing ethnographic research. I have all of these materials. How do I begin organize them? Is coding using Atlas TI uh, a way of killing the spark in my material? Or is it a good way to find your way into the, um, into the richness? Uh, how do you, what do you do with the anxiety that you feel uh, with this sense of overflowing, or as we say in the book, the sense of feeling that you're drowning in all of this material, all of which seems to be important. Um, What is the relationship between that and the research questions that you framed originally? 
And for me, at least one that was really important as a person that is not a, a, a native English speaker that has written basically most of my scholarship in English, this question of the aesthetics of writing and how there, I saw around me this sense that as long as you're a beautiful writer, you're doing amazing work, right? And I know, like, I felt very insecure that I did was not doing beautiful writing in English. Does that mean that my work is never going to be read? So that was another element in the in the crafting of that hypothetical figure. Um, I don't know, Britt, if you want to add anything. Yeah, I, I could say that I had a couple of students reading uh, the introduction in a draft version, and I was very moved when they came and said, you know, I know exactly what you mean. I can identify with this person very much. And that helped us, you know, craft that figure. Now, um, you argue that... Um, Ethnographical analysis is a process that can be full of space for imaginative thinking while resolutely grounded in a distinct understanding of empirics that is thoroughly ethnographic, right? And then you say, then you say um, analysis is a practice by which we can intensify the conceptual creativity and relational commitments that sit at the core of ethnography in its best forms. Um, how should we uh, understand this statement? Well, um, I have two things that I can open with. Uh, so one is about um, our discussions initially about techne, so the Greek um, notion of, of, of material technologies and, and the importance of how we uh, engage with the material world in our conceptual work and our theoretical thinking. So that was a very important driver as well for our, and you will also see when we discuss the sections of the book, that there are, uh, for example, attention to bodily practices and relocation, very physical and physical objects is the second, and infrastructural play you know, so we have this attention to how, um, you know, not only how we organize, but also how things, concepts, thinking, theories, gets organized by the, um, you know, socio-technical systems that we are part of as, as thinkers and writers. And that's the first comment. And uh, the second one um, is really about concepts themselves as... Um, what one of the authors in the book, uh, Marisol de la Cadena, talks about as ethnographic concepts, that they are always both um, abstract and concrete. So in ethnography, our concepts will always have a very close uh, relationship and affinity with, with the places and, and people where we, you know, encounter them and refine them and, and, you know, that will always live inside the concepts, these people and our engagements with them. So I think that is my, you know, opening for how we should understand that quote. Mm -hmm. I would add to that. Uh, and thank you for reading that. Uh, you know, sometimes you write um, things and then you don't actually most of the time. <laughs> you don't go back to read them often, and it's really nice uh, to hear from you uh, 
the the specific sections that you're you're pulling out and that you find uh, interesting to think with. Um, I actually really liked now that you read it again this notion of intensifying uh, <laughs> creativity and also intensifying the relational commitments um, as empirical issues. And maybe what I'll say about that is uh, we, you know, let me just create the, in a way, the straw man of the uh, classic ethnography. Again, just to, just for contrast, we know this is, these are, it's more complicated than that, but just uh, to make my point. So if a certain point we thought of ethnography as a practice that narrated or that conveyed what other people thought, right? There was an anthropologist that went to a location that they were not very familiar with and came back and wrote uh, what they understood was happening there as a way to convey uh, to an audience uh, what was happening there. There's the, that's sort of the more classic understanding. I think for all of us in the book, and particularly for, for Brit and I, there's, there's a way in which we think that those empirical relations as not, not as relations that you report on, but as relations where you think with collaborators, interlocutors in the quote-unquote field sites where you do your work. So it's not, I'm going to go to a quote-unquote field site, learn what these people think, and then put it on a, on a book or an article or something like that. And my analysis is how to tease out what those people think. It's not that for us. I think we have a much more uh, a much more dynamic understanding of the process of thinking together and intensifying the conceptual creativity that grows out of the empirical relationships uh, that you build with people uh, that you work with, with your interlocutors. Sometimes these interlocutors are very close collaborators with whom you have shared projects, shared political projects. Sometimes they're not. Yet, regardless of that, I've always understood my work, uh, my ethnographic work, as a practice of, of thinking with uh, the, the humans and in some cases not humans with whom um, I do my work. And so those relational commitments, uh, those are in a certain way also empirical commitments, are from our point of view at the core of the conceptual creativity that uh, ethnography uh, enables. Um, and that creativity, again, is also, it, it's bound to come out of practices of analysis, or you want to say, you could say practices of thinking together, uh, practices of borrowing each other's ideas, practices of even borrowing each other's facts. Uh, so just a, a concept that I've been thinking a, a lot uh, about, the idea of how do we borrow each other's facts um, and how, to, how do you craft that and how do you remain clear about the ethics and politics of doing that when you're doing ethnographic work. And so that's a lot, but that's just to say that from my point of view, at least, all of that fits into this category of the empirics of ethnographic work. Uh. 
Now, um, what do you mean when you argue that analysis is a concrete process of opening our insights and that analysis is an exercise in seeking an anticipated insight? Mm, I just want to, again, point to an example from the book and also maybe we could uh, stay a moment with this uh, collaborative spirit that the book has. Um, and it has a collaborative spirit, not only because the way it was conceived in the encounter between uh, Andrea and my and, and, and our lab and studio and our experiences of working together with others around analysis and not having it as a solitary experience, but also because um, many of the chapters are really collaborative. I mean, uh, one of the chapters has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight authors. Uh, another chapter speaks about um, borrowing each other's facts, yes, but in the format of objects where you exchange objects to analyze each other's objects without any or much pre-knowledge um, about that field site where the object uh, came from. Um, people speak about, uh, you know, working together with um, practitioners in the field, like, for example, uh, Alberto Jimenez, where he works with uh, activists in Madrid um, and actually also works through various online archives um, together. So um, so the 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 shared space of analysis as a collaborative space was really important for us in order to uh, tease out the experimental as a way of relating to ethnographic findings, not as, you know, very sacred units that had to be protected from the contamination of other people's, uh, you know, thinking or suggestions or assumptions about, you know, like what Andrea was said, said said before about the reporting, so that that the the ethnographic um, findings would somehow have to be preserved uh, and and remain sort of pristine until it was reported upon and analyzed uh, by yourself and reported from uh, in an uh, in an article that we would rather much rather you know try to test with other people okay so what is this what does this mean what could it possibly mean how far can we take our thinking you know in in one or the other direction around let's say um an, a, a conversation that somebody had you know or you know an event or these kind of things I think the, the concept of openness and insight, those two concepts are, uh, are very, are very present in our, in our thinking. Um, and I would say that they also do important work in rejecting another concept that is always, uh, not always, but it's many times, uh, overvalued, I think, which is the concept of the new. So maybe I'll say something about the relation between those, uh, those things. And I'll begin with a very personal reflection. Um, so from my point of view, um, 
I I try to understand the the responsibilities uh, of of my own work, uh, my research work, uh, as a member of an intellectual community. So there's I have responsibilities also as a participant or as a part of the communities that I do work with. But I'm going to speak only now about the part uh, where I just you know I publish books and say things uh, just about that part. Um, so I understand that responsibility as a responsibility to uh, push my own practice uh, so that I can offer some insight or some contribution that adds something to what we know or what we think or what I think people think about a certain situation in the world, right? In other words, and I have this conversation often with my students, in, in the United States, which is because this is a very placed uh, reflection, where you have support, financial support of a certain kind to do your research in different institutions that varies more or less. Uh, what is it that we, why is it that we're doing this and what are we responsible for beyond the very important, more personal and intimate pleasure of doing research and and writing right because that's there and I don't deny that there's a pleasure and a joy that one has uh, that motivates going into a PhD or doing uh, research but there's many things more so what are the other responsibilities that you have some of those are of course to your communities that you work with but in terms of the knowledge that you're producing why is it that you're doing this? What is it that I am doing this? And the way I answer that question for myself and in conversations with students is you would want to offer something that is not immediately known. You want to offer an insight that is not readily available, something that maybe is not taken for granted by everybody. If, if we're going to say something that is already taken for granted, maybe we don't need to do this research. Right? Maybe we need to do something else. Uh, right? Now, I want to emphasize, this is not about the new. This is not about innovation. This is not about fetishizing saying something that has never been said. Not at all. I don't believe that exists. It is about a commitment to pushing ourselves to, to reach and try to touch that insight that was not fully expected when you began. If you already know the answer to the research questions that you're posing, maybe you need to recalibrate your questions. Maybe your questions are too general and too big and too sort of self-evident. Maybe you need to recalibrate those. And by doing that, you can generate this insight that you didn't quite anticipate, although, and this is the beauty of ethnographic research, you always had a sense for you felt there's something here that, that I think relates to X, Y, and C, or that grows out of B and D. Uh, but I can't quite, I'm not completely sure. I can't quite figure it out. Then you need ethnographic research to generate those, those insights that are uh, that you did not have at the beginning. And here's where the question of openness is, is crucial because only if you're open can you touch on that uh, insight. If you're not open, you're going to stick to what you already knew before starting the project. I, I'm very inspired by what you're saying right now, Andrea. And I think the openness uh, in 
analytical work also comes with a responsibility towards precision. And that is also one thing that we're trying to achieve this way that in the in in the openness, in the playground that we invite people to create with inspiration from the book, also the commitment to to precision, maybe rather than to seeking the new, but to be extremely precise in relation to uh, the questions and the the concerns that we are researching at the at the current moment. Why should we ask um, how is analysis instead of what is analysis? That goes back a little bit to the comment I made previously about uh, the material interest that we have, that we are interested in being like very practical and pragmatic and um, and to, to figure out like the nuts and bolts and the mechanics of our analytical work in practice. So that's why we should ask about how, because how opens up uh, for curiosity in relation to organization, you know, on a very, in a very practical way, who are, who are we here together and what are we doing here together at this exact time and place and uh, what are our resources for doing it and so on. Very practical interests. Uh, in addition to that, uh, we also knew that there existed resources that ask the question, what is analysis? In fact, there's uh, an edited volume in social analysis and a special issue that is organized around the question of what is analysis. So, uh, and I, I think this also comes uh, from a feminist orientation uh, to acknowledging the work and labor that already exists in the world rather than coming with a uh, also a colonial uh, notion that presumes there's nothing there and what you have to say is what's going to fill this void as is as if there had never been anything there before, right? Uh, so we didn't want to do that. Um, so in addition to this concern with the very concreteness uh, of how analysis is performed, which in itself is a radical ethnographic orientation, or that's how we think about it, um, let's think about analysis by ethnographically charting how analysis is performed. Um, so in addition to that, the question of what is analysis as, a, as an abstract conceptual uh, question had been addressed and there were very interesting resources uh, already in place. And we do borrow for uh, some of those uh, in the introduction. But we didn't want to... Uh, commit to one sense of defining analysis or charting what analysis was also because there's a variety of understandings of that amongst the authors in our in our book and and since the objective was not a treatise on the conceptual definition or conceptual space of analysis as a category in western thought right we didn't want to put all of the space in the introduction to that because it's a very extensive process project. Uh, and instead we wanted to ground, uh, to sort of perform the ethnographic um, 
invitation that we're making in the way in which we approach the question for the book itself uh, as well. Uh, so there is a place for the question of what is analysis, absolutely. But in our book, we, we didn't want to focus on that question. We, wanted, uh, we didn't want to move so quickly that we ended up in this very abstract space, forgetting what Britt has just said, the, that this is happening in, through particular bodies, in particular places, with access to certain technologies and material resources and not other. So what happens is what we did, we told ourselves, what happens if we change the angle of the question and move it to the how rather than beginning with the what, which is a more, which could become a more abstract discussion. Uh, Great. Um, um, could you please um, elaborate on the time-space of analysis? This is a sp this speaks to exactly the same the same issue. Instead of presuming there is a universal subject with endless resources, endless time, and usually uh, a wife that is taking care of everything that needs to be taken care of at your home, or even typing out your brilliant thoughts, as was as it was the case for a lot of the 20th century, right? For many famous anthropologists and other thinkers. Instead of presuming that, uh, what happens when we begin with the explicit uh, awareness that analysis is taking place in a particular time space? Now, one, once you start there, you can also move the reflection Uh, from the from the this question of the desk, the body, and who's doing the laundry and who's cleaning the house while you're doing all of this ethnographic work, uh, you can also think about the time space of analysis as something that happens within a project or within a question, within a, a, an ethnographic question, and at that in that on that dimension, uh, something that uh, Britt mentioned before uh, is also really important this recognition that we're operating in a particular time in history where universities are managed in certain ways that require output and production, quick production, so that either you can go up in the rankings or you can you know, get more grants or you can increase your citations, right? We're fully aware that we are in that uh, knowledge economy. In other, in other cases, people are working in universities that are completely understaffed and underfunded and have very, very minimal resources to do research and have to do a lot of teaching but can't do a lot of research. So that, that is also the time space of analysis. So there's a way in which rejections on the, of, on the precarity with which many people um, perform this work have... Uh, revolved around the idea, we need more time. We need more time to do research. And while absolutely that is the case, we also wanted to suggest that in addition to that, what could we, what means can we create to expand the time space of analysis, right? To extend, to stretch out that moment in which you haven't quite arrived to the argument that you want to make. At the end, going back to the discussion of openness that we were having before, 
And so if you want to slow down that, if you don't want to rush to have the answer in a way that is basically reproducing what we already know, uh, how do you stretch time? How do you stretch that time space? And this is where the protocols and the chapters come in. What we suggest is that there's a way in which you can stretch that space of analysis by performing certain tasks or certain techniques that do that in a very concrete way. So if we if you decide that you want to exchange objects, right, with a collaborator or another ethnographer that is doing particular project and you exchange an object as a way to ask questions about that object that is you know it requires a little bit of time yes but that's also a stretching out of that moment when you don't quite know or you shouldn't know at least what your final argument is and so the time space of analysis is that uh, as well. It's not only how many hours, months, or, or, or weeks you have to perform a project, but it's also that time space between doing the ethnographic um, fieldwork and arriving to an insight that you want to share with others. That space between those two things can be stretched, and we suggest that one way of stretching it is by doing some of the by following some of the protocols that are offered in the book, which are flexible enough to be adapted and adjusted to your own conditions and specific historical uh, context. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, how does this time space of analysis is um, linked to some concepts, um, for instance, Marilyn Stratton's notion of um, the ethnographic effect or uh, the notion of the dazzle. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, the ethnographic effect um, was actually um, very inspiring to us because it uh, it talks about what is happening in a particular moment during fieldwork that Strathern calls the ethnographic moment, which she says is the moment when the field of observation is recreated in a reflexive and analytical field. And she makes passes no judgment about where that uh, recreation is happening or what inspires it. And one of the things that she has talked about, the dazzle, is exactly in terms of inspiration or an aspiration that she can take up and 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 work through and move through and feel again um, um, at, at, at other points in time. So the ethnographic moment is not exactly not the moment in during fieldwork where you know, the strike of genius uh, hits you and you suddenly see everything clearer. It's a process, really. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers uh, more or less uh, what we mean by that and how we're inspired by Strathern. And it, actually, maybe I could also tell that during our uh, writing of the book or the composing uh, and working with all these wonderful authors, we were very lucky to visit Marilyn Stratton uh, at her home in Cambridge. And one of the things that surprised me, at least uh, in our conversation with her, was that 
she was actually very committed to method. And we thought, oh, um, here's this wonderful, uh, fantastic uh, theorist uh, and thinker um, who probably has all sorts of, you know, um, abstract ideas about how to write, for example. And it was wonderful to to hear her talk about uh, analysis also as a very specific thing that resonated very much with our idea of the protocol uh, as a framing device and the constraining of our, you know, wild ideas that when actually bringing things down to earth and into writing, because you can think a lot of things, but you can't write <laughs> a lot of things. Uh, you can write a lot of things, but you cannot write easily the way you can think things, right? So she talked about uh, index cards, for example, that she had been using uh, when she was uh, in in her fieldwork in Melanesia to organize materials. And that resonated very well with our interest in methods so that ethnographic moments, actually moments that can be, yeah, as I said, in her words, recreated uh, in, an, in a reflexive and analytical field. And this idea of the effect, I think it's really uh, powerful. And... Uh... So an effect is something that is accomplished and it's uh, nurtured or created by humans or by non-humans, of course. But, but it's, not, it's not causality, although it, it speaks of a certain causality, but it's not about offering a precise, precise description of causality, but it's about recognizing the way in which something is brought into being. So it's not merely... Presented, it's not merely um, it doesn't merely appear, uh, and it's there and it's recognizable, and you can just grab it and present it again, right? That's a that's a different epistemological orientation. The idea of an effect is is speaks to something totally different: the accumulation or the organization of a series of gestures, materials, experiences, histories that end up having a particular effect that we might call ethnographic. And why is it ethnographic? Uh, because it couldn't have been fully anticipated at the beginning, right? And if, if you mentioned the dazzle. The dazzle is something that, that captures you in such a way because you can't quite explain it away yet. It's something that grabs your thinking, your imagination, your politics, your affect. Uh, but it's not something that can be explained away as already understood. We already figured this out. We don't need to spend a lot of time because we already know what this is. Something that dazzles in Strathern's views is something that, that it's like a net. And there's, of course, another uh, many... Uh, Anthropologists have, have written about this, and most recently other anthropologists, including Alberto Cruz and Jimenez, is talking about traps, right? But it, it's almost like a trap also, the dazzle, right? You, you're caught up in it. You can't quite let it go, uh, and largely because you cannot just, just explain it away. It is not something that can be taken for granted. And an ethnographic effect is, uh, is the result of being caught up and finding a way to organize the elements that the the ropes that that 
uh, you're caught up in so that you can describe them in a way that it reveals something that you didn't fully anticipate about the world that you're caught up in. Um, so this is, this is all about imagination, creativity, uh, and, and experimentation in a certain way, but through a very serious uh, commitment to the empirics of ethnographic research, uh, which takes, can take the shape of index cards uh, where you're organizing your observations uh, all the way to all of the other things that you see in the book uh, in terms of the protocols. Now, um, the book contains four parts, right? Um, part one, bodily practices and relocations. Part two, physical objects. Part three, infrastructural play. And part four, incommensurabilities. And two afterwards at the final part, right? And why did you decide to structure your book this way? That's an excellent question because it's a... The book did not start with this structure. So the book started with invitations, as we had mentioned before, to people whose analytic practices we were very inspired by. Mm -hmm. And... Um, We didn't. We had some suggestions uh, based on what we knew about their work, but we didn't guide them to say this is the thing that you have to write about. And so, when the contributions came back, our challenge was to think about this organization. And in keeping with the spirit of the book, we didn't want to do. We don't, we, we didn't want to group the chapters in a way that spoke to. Uh, particular theoretical arguments or particular uh, uh, fields of knowledge or areas of uh, ethnographic research, geographic or uh, or um, institutional or technological. Instead, we want what we did is we asked what are uh, each of the protocols that you see in each of the chapters. How is it? What things of the world are they mobilizing to do this analytic work? And so we went through the uh, through the um, chapters, and based on that, we began to create these groupings. And the one thing that I will say is that there's many ways, many other ways, in which the the chapters could be organized. So, in a sense, the structure that you see is a placeholder. Uh, for a particular kind of organization, but it's not, we're not making any ontological claims with it or argumentative claims. It's, it's just a pragmatic device to create the groupings uh, based on what you'll find uh, the protocols uh, engaging with. Mm -hmm. Now, um, let's move on to uh, each of the parts, right? Um, and the part one uh, includes um, four chapters entitled uh, Tactile Analytics, Touching as a Collective Act by Patricia Alvarez Astacio, The Ethnographic Hunch by Sarah Pink, The Parasite in Ethnographic Research Projects by George Marcus, and Juxtaposition, Differences That Matter by 
else Vogel. So, um, what are the main ideas and and maybe the main contributions of, of this first part? In this first part, you'll find chapters that are that put embodied relations at the center. Uh, so, in all of the ethnographic uh, protocols that are offered here, you'll see a very explicit relation with the body, either by thinking of the body as a form of sensing and thinking, as is the case in the in Patricia's um, uh, chapter, or by thinking about the in a more much more general uh, sense the location of the body. Who are the people that would meet for a meeting, that would come for a meeting uh, when you're asking uh, ethnographic questions, such as uh, the case of the parasite that George Marcus uh, writes about? So uh, there's also less uh, concrete or or maybe a little bit more diffuse or abstract uh, uh, embodied experiences, such as the notion of the hunch. Uh, something that is embodied, but of course, uh, it's also an an objectified act of thinking. But it's also embodied in the sense that you feel this sense of where things might might be going. So all of these uh, all of these protocols are explicitly oriented to uh, thinking with and through the body uh, from very introspective, intimate ways, such as the idea of the hunch, to more um, outwards looking as to what are the people and hence the bodies that would come together to run a parasite uh, when you're thinking about an ethnographic question. Mm -hmm. Now let's move on to the uh, next part, part two, Um, physical objects, which includes Relocating Innovation, Postcards from Three Ages by Andrew Daniel and, Lu- and Lucy Sushman and Laura Watts. Um, Object Exchange by Trying Mingit Corsby and Anthony Stavriagnakis. Drawing as Analysis, Thinking in Images, Writing in Words by Rachel Douglas-Jones. And finally, Diagrams, Making Multispecies Temporalities Visible by Elaine Gann. Uh, what are the main I- ideas and, and contributions uh, of this part two? In the second part, we still have quite an embodied uh, sense, actually, in all of the chapters. But in addition to that, we have, uh, I mean, so people working through drawings, for example, and uh, people um, making uh, an effort to find and create postcards from various field sites in order to exchange. So there's still very much about the ethnographic body and the work uh, it takes to to um, to collect items, to collect objects and to uh, exchange and make objects uh, relevant in the analysis. But what I want to say in addition is that this is a very interesting thing going on here where objects are not only representing um, field sites or events or people. It's not, you know, uh, just things that have been collected um, somewhere. They are also being, um, you know, brought to life in the engagement with the ethnographer in a collective 
or in a in a situation where, for example, uh, it it uh, the objects uh, the limits for what an object can mean are actually being pushed in collaboration with others. So uh, these are very different chapters, but they have that in common that they are seeking to find other ways to use material objects uh, to to f- as mediators for our thinking practices. Great. Now, uh, let's move on to the next part, part three, infrastructural play, um, which contain, which includes ethnographic drafts and well archives by Alberto Corsin Jimenez, multimodal sorting, the flow of images across social media and anthropological analysis by Karen Waltorp, categorize recategorize, repeat by Graham Jones, and finally, sound recording as analytic technique by Britt Rose Winterake and James Maguire. Um, what are the main and ideas and, and conclusions in, in this third part, infrastructural play? What you find here in contrast to the previous two sections are uh, suggestions about how to craft uh, what we might call infrastructures for analytic practice. That is how to craft uh, processes or um, uh, forms of scaffolding uh, that can then uh, be used to perform analysis uh, in a variety of settings. So for instance, if you think about collaborations uh, with uh, your interlocutors, in the case of Alberto, with people that are involved in urban uh, activism, what is the role, the role of a draft? You know, we all produce drafts uh, when we produce reports for projects that we have been funded, um, that have been funded by particular entities or to the municipalities or to the neighbors with whom you're mobilizing. So how can we think of the draft as an infrastructure for collaborative analytic work. Something similar with the use of images. How is it that sorting out images and creating flows of images, uh, in, in, in this particular case, photographs, how might that create an infrastructure for conversation and thinking with your participants, but also to challenge your own assumptions about what uh, is happening in this uh, field site? In the case of the chapter with... Uh, uh, that Brit wrote with with James Maguire, thinking about the podcast and sound itself as a way not only to create this conversation between the people that um, are part of the con- uh, podcast, like in this case, the three of us, but also what is happening at the moment in which the three of us, or in that case, Brit and James, are thinking about the audience that is going to be listening to the podcast and how is that an analytic practice of thinking with that third group of people, even if not they're not present in the, in the podcast. So uh, in all of them, as in all of the chapters, you find at the end protocols with suggestions about how can this uh, infrastructural building can be uh, borrowed and used by people doing all sorts of uh, projects that is you, the readers, uh, and how they can be adjusted uh, in terms of the the utility or the the capacity of these infrastructures to refresh your analytic practice. Let's move on to the 
final part, part four, incommensurabilities, which includes um, substance as method, shaking up your practice by Joseph Dammit, excreting variously on contrasting as an analytic technique by Justin Laurent, Oliver Human, Carolina Dominguez Guzman, Els Rodin, Ulrich Schultes, Marianne Delate, and Anne-Marie Moll. Um, then facilitating breakdowns through the exchange of perspectives by Stephen Dalsgaard. Analogy by Antonia Walford. Decolonizing knowledge devices by Ivan da Costa Marquez. Writing an ethnographic story in working toward responsibly unearthing ontological troubles by Helen Veran. And finally, not knowing in the presence of by Marisol de la Cadena. Um, what are the main uh, ideas um, in, in this final part, incommensurabilities? In this fourth part, uh, which is an incredibly rich uh, resource, uh, just like the other parts are, um, there are many uh, chapters in this part and what they have in common is that they are struggle with worlds that don't easily connect. So when uh, these people uh, present them, you know, their ways of working, what they highlight is that they will see in their material how um, difficult sometimes it is to uh, build bridges uh, in ways that do justice to differences in the material and the differences that are embedded in the materials because they link back to uh, to worlds that are maybe incommensurable one way or the other. So that's basically the idea of, of this rich uh, group of chapters here, uh, that, uh, that this is what they struggle with and that's what their protocols uh, are about, how to, how to bridge and sometimes, and in many cases, uh, keep in tension the differences and let them remain differences. Um, Andrea, would you like to add something to, to this final part? I think you find in this section uh, just protocols that take uh, in Spanish, we have this this thing, I don't know, uh, Gustavo, if you know it, which is to say, take things by the horns, mm -hmm, tomar mm -hmm. las cosas por los cuernos. Mm -hmm. So in this, in Tom, this section... To tomar al toro por los cuernos. Exactly. So in this section, what we have is uh, people doing exactly that when you reach the limits uh, of what your own categories or inherited knowledge allows you to make sense of. And so when you reach those limits, which is a very uh, uh, anthropological gesture, uh, how is it that you can take those limits and grab them uh, and turn them into moments for opening up analysis and experimenting with generating insights? So all of these, uh, all of these chapters do that in in very uh, I think provocative and, and inspiring ways uh, well 
finally, um, we, we have um, two afterwords, right? In the final part of the book. Afterward one, questions, experiments, and movements of ethnographies in the making by Melanie Ford Lemus and Katie Ulrich. And afterward two, where could you put this volume? On Thinking with Unruly Companions in the Middle of Things by Clement Driano and Marcus Rudolfi. Um, why did you choose to end the book with, with these uh, two, two interesting afterwords? It was really uh, important to, to us uh, from the very beginning to think of this book as a series of contributions for all of us as students, right? As rather than presuming that there is a group of people that has already uh, mastered a certain technique, think about all ethnographers as, a, as researchers that in a way are always students. Like it's in the sense of encountering and having to devise analytic practices that are specific for our research projects We all do that again and again when we start new projects. And so it was fitting to, to chart the direction uh, that the collection could go into with the thoughts and reflections of a, of a group of four um, scholars that at that time were still uh, undergraduate, uh, sorry, graduate students. And they, in each of the afterwards, takes a a distinct uh, orientation to the, to the question, what is this book good for? Also, as I mentioned at the beginning, the four of them were part of the editorial process. They were part of uh, the internal peer review that we did. So you see their thinking, uh, not only as something that is based on their own experience as students, but also as something that brings together the threads uh, of the of the different chapters. And we're, we're very proud of... of um, of having had the opportunity to work with them. They, they, they were uh, great collaborators. And the, the actual content of them afterwards is also very generative. So I really recommend that people take the time to read them, uh, the two afterwards. Uh, the question of what it means to experiment when you are a student is a, is a really critical one? Do you have the space, time, and resources to do so? Uh, what is it that that you can uh, accomplish by working with the protocols in this, in this book? And how might that, uh, as a way of probably creating a little bit of uncertainty, how could that, can that uncertainty be brought into the process of writing a dissertation in a way that is practical and conducive to you finishing your dissertation rather than uh, making you feel um, frozen and that, that this is not something that you're, you, you can do. So we saw the afterwards as the future in a way, and, and that's why we wanted to, instead of having a conclusion or something like that, have the voices of these, of these collaborators. Um, Professor Winterreich, uh, would you like to, to say, uh, to add uh, some final words, final ideas uh, to this uh, wonderful book, Experimenting with Ethnography? Oh, um, I just wanted, like Andrea just did, to highlight our collaboration with the authors of the afterwards because they were crucial for making the book 
uh, understandable, readable, and um, and and be what it is because of that close collaboration. Um, and I would like to say that in the case of the chapter that I was part of, of uh, writing, that it's very much about uh, failure too. So I hope there will be also some, I think, identification for readers in 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 all the hardship and difficulty of 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 doing analysis um, alone or together with others, and and also some uh, consolation in the in the in the recipes in the protocols to uh, to just try again. And Professor Ballesteros, what, what are your final words uh, in this interview? I, I, words of gratitude is how I would begin. Uh, gratitude, of course, to Brit for our collaboration. Extreme gratitude uh, with the authors. When we invited them to be part of the collection, we actually had a very, uh, even though thematically and substantively, we we're not necessarily committed to something. Formally, we were. We wanted a short chapter and we wanted a protocol. And so we invited the authors to do that, uh, which is particularly right in a protocol. It's not something that people, that we do very often. Uh, we actually tend to be a little bit uh, allergic to protocols in a certain way in ethnography. And so I'm extremely grateful uh, for for the willingness of the authors to just give this a try. Um, and uh, I think the result is, is incredible. I'm also very grateful to uh, all of the people that have been using the book. Uh, it, it's There's nothing better than the feeling that you have of people saying, yeah, we used this and, and we gave it a try and it was good in these ways and, and these things didn't work, uh, but it, it opened uh, space for, for thinking together collab collaboratively in, with uh, students or with other researchers. So a gratitude to them uh, as well. I will also say that the book is open access. So you can download the file for free. You don't if you, if you like the the material object, of course, uh, you know one can buy it. But if you are in, in parts outside of the United States where it's extremely expensive to to ship these books, please feel free to download the the, the PDF file. It's on Duke's website. It's on my website. It's on a variety of other open access uh, sources or, or databases or, or repositories as well. So that's the last thing that I will say. Well, Professor Ballestero, uh, Professor Winterreich, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we end our interview, I wonder if you could tell us about um, what research projects you are working on now. Well, I have um, already mentioned about the digital inclusion, diversity and social justice a project that I'm working on where we look at what we call partially digital citizens, which is, of course, only a beginning concept that we want to uh, enrich with our ethnographic studies. Um, but it's an intervention in a digitalized welfare state where everybody's expected to become or be digital citizens. And we're wondering what that figure actually looks like in practice and we're starting to find out and we have wonderful collaborations with libraries and with the government agencies and uh, it's uh, 
very interesting and needed project that I feel very uh, proud of. Thank you for asking. I have been working on uh, relearning uh, the rich extent of temporality of underground worlds in Costa Rica. And I'm starting with, uh, by thinking with aquifers. So what would happen if, if instead of thinking that the underground is tied to extractivist uh, industries such as oil and mine, uh, mining, what if we start uh, by thinking about underground spaces as watery spaces? And so I'm doing this with a group of collaborators in Costa Rica that includes people that work with the state, the State Water Underground Water Agency, and uh, local communities that have um, launched uh, participatory aquifer management plans. In this project, I'm also, you know, in, in contrast to my previous work, this project has a very strong spatial component. So I am learning uh, GIS and I am learning uh, about mapping practices and uh, it will have a, a strong component that takes, uh, that thinks carefully about the visual ways uh, in which we can represent and think with ethnographic materials, including sound and uh, image, as I mentioned. So that's what I'm working on. And this is going to be like a three, four year project. Great, that, that, that sounds really, really inspiring. I'm really looking forward to, to reading your new, your new books. Thank you so much for talking with us today. All the luck and success for what is coming. Thank you Thank very you so much. much. Thank you very much, Gustavo. It's it's been wonderful to talk to you, and thank you everybody for listening and making the time uh, to think about experimenting with ethnography. Perfect. Thank you so much, Professor Ballestero, Professor Vinterreich. It was your host, Gustavo Gutierrez Suarez. See you on the next episode of New Books in Anthropology. <laughs>